quiet this morning. Most people know the story of the first Thanksgiving. The pilgrims landed at Plymouth Rock in November 1620 after the long voyage across the Atlantic Ocean. 102 passengers disembarked. Only 52 would survive that first winter. The following spring, they met Massasoit, the local Indian chief, and Squanto, the sole survivor of the tribe that had previously occupied their new home. Squanto showed them how to cultivate their crops, which was a godsend for them, because otherwise they probably would have starved the first winter. And when they harvested that fall, a day of thanksgiving was proclaimed with Massasoit as the guest of honor. He showed up with 90 of his braves, five dressed deer and a number of wild turkeys, and the feast went on for three days. That's a story we all grew up with. Now, as Paul Harvey used to say, for the rest of the story, it was only a few weeks after that first Thanksgiving when a ship unexpectedly showed up with 35 new settlers, including a number of family members of the current settlers. And after the initial joy of these new arrivals, the next morning, the leaders of the colony figured out that these new settlers had brought no supplies, no bedding, no tools, and most importantly, no food. And since now, they had almost doubled in size, they immediately went on half rations. And some months later, That daily ration had been reduced to five grains of corn per person per day. And that was their ration for several weeks. Now you can only imagine what they were thinking of because they knew about what had happened at Jamestown about 12 years earlier. At the beginning of the winter of 1609, there were over 500 residents in Jamestown. Come spring, there were 61. Almost 90% of the settlement starved to death in that winter. And while that had happened at Jamestown, none of the pilgrims starved. They went hungry, but none of them died of starvation. And then in addition to the meager rations, there was an unprecedented drought in the spring of 1623 that extended into 12 weeks. It was so severe, the Indians, the oldest Indians, had never seen anything like it. Edward Winslow described it thusly. There scarce fell any rain so that the stalk of the planting which was first set began to use began to send forth the ear before it came to half growth. And that which was later not like to yield any at all, both blade and stalk hanging the head and changing the color in such manner as we judged it utterly stood at a stay, many being parched away as though they had been scorched before the fire. Now were our hopes overthrown and we discouraged, our joy turned into mourning because God, which hitherto had been our only shield and supporter, now seemed in his anger to arm himself against us, and who can withstand the fierceness of his wrath? These and the like considerations moved not only every good man privately to enter into examination with his own estate between God and his conscience, and so to humiliation before him, but also to humble ourselves together before the Lord by fasting and prayer. To that end, a day was appointed by public authority and set apart from all other employments. But oh, the mercy of our God, who was as ready to hear as we were to ask. For though in the morning when we assembled together, the heavens were as clear and the drought as like to continue as it ever was, yet our exercise continuing some eight or nine hours before our departure, 
The weather was overcast and clouds gathered on all sides. On the next morning distilled such soft, sweet, and moderate showers of rain, continuing some 14 days, and mixed with such seasonable weather as it was hard to say whether our withered corn or drooping affections were the most quickened or revived, such was the bounty and goodness of our God. William the Bradford, he was the governor for most of the early years of the colony, recorded this in his book. It came without either wind or thunder or any violence, and by degrees in that abundance is that the earth was thoroughly wet and soaked therewith, which did so apparently revive and quicken the decayed corn and other fruits, as was wonderful to see and made the Indians astonished to behold. And of the Indians, Winslow wrote, and all of them admired the goodness of our God towards us, that wrought so great a change in so short a time, showing the difference between their conjuration, they'd been doing rain dances, and our invocation on the name of God for rain, theirs being mixed with such storms and tempests as sometimes, instead of doing them good, it laid the corn flat on the ground to their prejudice, but ours in so gentle and seasonable a manner as they never observed the like. In other words, when it rained on the pilgrims, it was a soft rain that was just like using a hose. When it rained on the Indians, it was like a hurricane. It's almost like in, uh, when Charles was talking, preaching about the plagues in Egypt last week, how there was a difference between Egypt and the land of Goshen where the children of Israel were. The harvest was so plentiful that the pilgrims had an overabundance of corn and allowing them to trade with the Indians for other needed supplies. And so, a second day of thanksgiving was proclaimed to coincide with the wedding of the governor. He had been widowed in the first winter, and he was marrying a, a gal that had also been widowed. Massasoit was again the guest of honor, and this time he showed up with his principal wife, three other chiefs, and 120 braves. He brought venison and turkeys again. One of the newer settlers, one of the fellows that had arrived on the second ship, Emmanuel Altham, described the feast in a letter to his brother. After our arrival in New England, we found all our plantation in good health, and neither man, woman, or child sick. They weren't there for the first winter. In this plantation is about 20 houses, four or five of which are very pleasant, and the rest, as time will serve, shall be made better. The fishing that is in this country, indeed, it is beyond belief. In one hour, we got 100 cod. And now to say somewhat of the great cheer we had at the governor's marriage. We had about 12 tasty venisons, besides others, pieces of roasted venison, and other such good cheer in such quantities that I wish you some of our share. For here we have the best grapes that ever you saw, and the biggest and diverse sorts of plums and nuts, six goats and about fifty hogs and pigs, also diverse hens. A better country was never seen nor heard of, for here are a multitude of God's blessings. There was one detail that Altham didn't include in his letter to his brother. As they all sat down to that feast, on each plate, was set five grains of corn so that no one would forget. We tend to be forgetful, don't we? And forgetfulness isn't just a function of aging. Our forgetfulness is a spiritual issue. Jeremiah 2.32, can a virgin forget her ornaments or a bride her attire? Yet my people have forgotten me days without number. So God began early with Israel to establish memorials to help his people remember things that he had done, things that he had done on their behalf. And these reminders fall into two general categories, festivals and visual aids. There were seven festivals that were ordained by God 
there was Passover. There was the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which was attached to Passover. There was the Feast of First Fruits, the Feast of Pentecost, which was also called the Feast of Weeks. There was the Feast of Trumpets, also known as Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and then the Feast of Tabernacles, or the Feast of Booths. And then later, the Jews added two more. They had Hanukkah, which was a remembrance of the dedication of Second Temple. And then there was Purim, which was commemorating the deliverance of the children of Israel from the schemes of Haman. We read about that in the book of Esther. Now these festivals were largely about helping Israel to remember. So let's let it do our fingers, do some walking here. Turn your Bibles to the book of Exodus, chapter 12. We are ultimately going to get to our passage. It's just going to take a little bit to get there. Exodus 12 is when the Passover is actually happening. Remember that as we read what Moses is telling the people. Start in verse 14. Now this day will be a memorial to you, and you shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations, you are to celebrate it as a permanent ordinance. Skip down to verse 23. For the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to come in to your houses to smite you. And you shall observe this event as an ordinance for you and your children forever. When you enter the land which the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall observe this rite. And when your children say to you, what does this rite mean to you? You shall say, it is a Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the sons of Israel in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians, but spared our homes. And so it was intended to be a reminder. Now it's a reminder to them, and it's also an opportunity for them to instruct their children who weren't there to see it, and in perpetuity, so that people who were not physically there would understand the deliverance that God had made for his people. Flip over to Leviticus chapter 23. Leviticus 23, beginning in verse 39. This is referring to the Feast of Booths. On exactly the 15th day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the crops of the land, you shall celebrate the Feast of the Lord for seven days, with a rest on the first day and a rest on the eighth day. Now on the first day, you shall take for yourselves the foliage of beautiful trees, palm branches, and boughs of leafy trees and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. You shall thus celebrate it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It shall be a perpetual statute throughout your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall live in booths for seven days. All the native born in Israel shall live in booths so that your generations may know that I had the sons of Israel live in booths when I brought them out from the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So Moses declared to the sons of Israel the appointed times of the Lord. Now again, the book of Leviticus covers a month worth of time. It's the first month of the second year after they had come out from Egypt. They're just starting year two. They're going to spend 40 years in the wilderness because of unbelief and disobedience. God's already establishing 
the pattern for them. He's already establishing the statute because he's going to be faithful to them. If you go back a few verses, you would find that the same is true of the Feast of Weeks. During the Feast of Weeks, they are to remember that they were slaves in Egypt. And you could even argue for the Day of Atonement that it was to be a remembrance. It was to be a memorial to them. God is holy. They're not. And God is taking compassion on them by not giving them all of, the, of what they deserve for their sin. Those are the festivals. Now, God also started using visual aids. So, if you go to Exodus 16, we won't turn there. Exodus 16, Moses told Aaron to set aside a jar full of manna so that that would be able to be kept as a remembrance of God's provision for Israel every morning for 40 years, almost 40 years. The manna continued all the way until they got ready to go in across the Jordan. You know, when you think about that, how easy it was for them to forget that too, wasn't it? God brought DoorDash to their doorstep every day and they still found room to complain and grumble and murmur. And before we point too many fingers, we should probably look in the mirror for that one now, shouldn't we? Numbers chapter, Numbers chapter 15, they were to put tassels on the shoulders of their garments to remind them of the law that they would keep it. You'll find that in Numbers 15, 38 to 40. Go ahead and turn to Numbers chapter 16. In number 16, we find the rebellion of Korah and the sons of Korah. 250 leaders of the congregation, men of renown, that are rebelling against Moses and Aaron. And so, Moses tells the 250 men to take their censers, the thing that you would put incense in, and to light their incense, and God would choose. In fact, God wouldn't just choose when it came to Korah and the ringleaders. Moses said, you'll know that God is speaking when the earth opens up and swallows them alive. Verse 31. As he finished speaking all these words, the ground that was under them split open. And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up and their households and all the men who belonged to Kor with their possessions. So they and all that belonged to them went down alive to Sheol and the earth closed over them and they perished from the midst of the assembly. All Israel who were around them fled at their outcry for they said the earth may swallow us up. Fire also came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men who were offering the incense. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Say to Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, that he shall take up the censers out of the midst of the blaze, for they are holy. And you scatter the burning coals abroad. As for the censers of these men, who have sinned at the cost of their lives, let them be made into hammered sheets for a plating of the altar, since they did present them before the Lord, and they are holy, and they shall be for a sign to the sons of Israel. So every time that an Israelite came to present his offering, and he saw the plating on the altar, he was reminded of the cost of rebelling against God and God's prescribed manner for worship. Go to the next chapter. 
And you find that the trouble was still continuing. People were having a little trouble grasping this concept that God was the one who was sovereign over choosing how he was to be worshipped and how it was to be accomplished. And so we see that Moses cuts down an almond branch and gives it to a representative from all 12 tribes. And Aaron's rod buds and produces ripe almonds overnight. So we'll pick up in verse 8. Now on the next day, Moses went into the tent of the testimony, and behold, the rod of Aaron for the house of Levi had sprouted and put forth buds and produced blossoms, and it bore ripe almonds. Moses then brought out all the rods from the presence of the Lord to all the sons of Israel, and they looked, and each man took his rod. But the Lord said to Moses, Put back the rod of Aaron before the testimony to be kept as a sign against the rebels, that you may put an end to their grumblings against me, so that they will not die. Thus Moses did just as the Lord had commanded him, so he did. And then one that I'm sure all of us are probably pretty familiar with, go over to Joshua chapter 4. Moses has died. And Joshua is leading the people across the Jordan. Starting in verse 5, And Joshua said to them, Cross again to the ark of the Lord your God into the middle of the Jordan. And each one, he's, he's gotten one man from each of the twelve tribes. Each of you take up a stone on his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Israel. Let this be a sign among you, so that when your children ask later, saying, What do these stones mean to you? Then you shall say to them, Because the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord when it crossed the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones became, shall become a memorial to the sons of Israel forever. Now the book of Deuteronomy was written just before Moses died. It's basically three sermons that are connected together. And one of the key themes of the book of Deuteronomy is do not forget negatively, positively remember. Those two terms are used 30 times in the book. So again, don't forget, remember. Today, we're going to consider a passage from Deuteronomy chapter 4, the passage that was read by Jeff this morning. And frankly, we're going to focus on one verse. We'll focus on verse 9. We'll start in verse 1 quickly. Now, Israel, listen to the statutes and the judgments which I'm teaching you to perform so that you may live and go in and take possession of the land which the Lord your God, the God of your fathers, is giving you. You shall not add to the word which I am commanding you, nor take away from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you. That sounds like the end of the book of Revelation, right? You don't add to it. You don't take away What God is giving you is what he expects of you. It is what he requires of you. Don't mess with his revelation of who he is. Keep what he says in the way that he says it so that you may obey what he is saying and worship him rightly. Verse 3. Your eyes have seen what the Lord has done in the case of Baal Peor, for all the men who followed Baal Peor, the Lord your God has destroyed them from among you. But you who held fast to the Lord your God are alive today, every one of you. Now he's referring to Numbers chapter 25. In fact, go ahead and flip back a few pages to Numbers 25. Let's just read it. Numbers 25, beginning verse 1. While Israel remained at Shittim, the people began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab. You'll remember that the king of Midian had hired Balaam to come and curse the children of Israel. And he hadn't done it. God would not allow him to curse his chosen people. 
But because he wanted to get paid, he told the king of Midian, here is how you can trip them up. You have your daughters intermarry with them. You give your daughters to their sons, and you give your sons to their daughters. And so... They drew away the children of Israel. Verse 2, for they invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel joined themselves to Baal of Peor, and the Lord was angry against Israel. Here's how you can tell God was upset. The Lord said to Moses, take all the leaders of the people and execute them in broad daylight before the Lord so that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. So Moses said to the judges of Israel, each of you slay his men who have joined themselves to Baal of Peor. If you look down to verse 9, those who died by the plague were 24,000. Now this was weeks, maybe a few months, before Moses is speaking to the children on the shores of the Jordan. This is fresh in their memory. And so Moses is telling them, you've seen with your own eyes the consequences for rebellion and disobedience. Now you'll remember that because they had been wandering in the desert for 40 years, and they were wandering in the desert for 40 years until everybody from the generation that complained and complained and complained and disbelieved and wouldn't obey, died off. Those who had seen, those who had been at Mount Sinai were there as kids. Everybody above the age of 20, with the exception of Joshua and Caleb, had died in the wilderness. And so, if they had seen those things at the beginning of the wanderings, it's because they were young. And yet, Moses is reminding them, your eyes have seen. Verse 5, see, I have taught you statutes and judgments, just as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do thus in the land where you are entering to possess it. So keep and do them, for that is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. Israel was to be the light to the nations around them. They were to demonstrate the benefits of taking God at his word and obeying him and following what God said. Verse 7, for what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as is the Lord our God whenever we call on him? Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law which I'm setting before you today? No one else has got that. You guys are unique and you are to be the light to the nations. Verse 9, only give heed to yourself and keep your soul diligently so that you do not forget the things which your eyes have seen, and they do not depart from your heart all the days of your life. But make them known to your sons and your grandsons. Remember the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb at Mount Sinai, when the Lord said to me, Assemble the people to me, that I may let them hear my words, so that they may learn to fear me all the days they live on the earth, and that they may teach their children. So again, they heard God's word with the intent that they obey it and that they teach their children to do the same. So let's go back to verse 9. And basically, this morning, we're going to have two points out of this. What is it that they are to do? What is it that we are to do? You give heed to yourself and keep your soul diligently. This is something that's intentional. This isn't something that's accidental. It's not whimsical. It's not optional. And it's also a choice. You can choose not to be diligent, in which case you end up floating and you end up in trouble. Give heed to yourself, keep your soul diligently so that 
you do not forget the things which your eyes have seen and they do not depart from your heart all the days of your life. Moses here is concentrating on their personal experiences with God. Now, Moses is not putting their personal experiences as the pinnacle. If you turn over a page or two, you'll see in chapter 6, beginning at verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is our God, the Lord our, is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. God's word and the study of it and the teaching of it is supposed to infiltrate every area of your life. There's nothing that's outside of God's word and how we are to know it and obey it. And you're to teach it diligently. And that instruction is to be something that, again, is just part of the warp and woof of everyday life. As you're walking along the road, you can instruct about the law of God to your son and your daughter. And so Moses places, God places high priority, high value on his word. In chapter 4, Moses is concentrating on their experiences with God. Your eyes have seen God act. You have seen God's provision. You're still eating manna every morning that shows up and melts away in the afternoon. You're still enjoying the benefits of God's provision for you. And these are things that you are personally seeing, you are personally experiencing. So why the big deal with this? It's because when we remember what God has done for us, that is what drives our personal faith. Now we have God's word, and please, I'm not setting experience above God's word. But can I tell you, when I'm talking to my kids, I want to be like David and not Saul. Do you remember Saul talking to Samuel? Would you please appeal to the Lord your God? He was Samuel's God, not his. How did David refer to God? He's the Lord my God. Can you see, when David has that attitude toward God, can you see how that drove his writing of the Psalms? How he is speaking back and forth with God? It, it influenced everything in his life. When David went to stand before Goliath, why was he not fearful? I faced the lion in caring for the sheep. I faced the lion. I whacked him. I faced the bear. I whacked him. The same God who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this uncircumcised Philistine. And so Goliath goes out with his armor, his sword. The guy's he's a big guy. It's like nine feet tall. And David goes out there, no armor. I'm going to get some rocks. And Goliath, you are about to experience Excedrin headache number one. And he <laughs> pops him in the forehead, drops him, and he goes over, takes Goliath's own sword, and cuts his head off with it. What happened to Goliath's sword, by the way? Goliath's sword went to the tabernacle. It was kept as a remembrance of the delivery 
of the, of the children of Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Remember when David was running from Saul, he goes to the tabernacle, and have you got a sword around? No, we don't have any swords. Well, except the one that was from Goliath. How appropriate that David would end up with it. What our eyes see, when we remember the things that God has done on our behalf, that is what drives faith. Faith looks upward. It looks to God. We can look back in the past and see how God has been faithful. We have a Bible that is full of narratives, of examples, of the faithfulness of God over centuries. And when we have that, we can look back and we can see that because God has been faithful in the past, then I can trust him to be faithful today and I can trust him to be faithful in the future. And so the first issue here is recall. Do not forget. That's the negative way of saying it. Remember, recall those things that, God, that you have seen God do. But it doesn't stop with recalling. There's a second component, and that is, after you recall, you need to recount. And I'm not talking about counting something over a second time. I'm talking about as in a story. You tell the story. When people see, when the children would come and see the rocks, the, the pile of rocks outside the Jordan River, okay, what do these mean? The rock, it's, it's not about the rock. It's about what God did. That, is, that, that story is stimulated by the example, by the picture. And so when they looked at the rocks there by the Jordan, they would remember God took us across the Jordan on dry ground. When they have the, the Phyllis, uh, gosh, excuse me, when they have the Passover, what does this mean to you? Oh, this is where God delivered us from slavery in Egypt. When they look at Goliath's sword, oh, that sword belonged to Goliath, the giant who defied Israel and defied God. And he, God delivered him into the hand of a shepherd boy. And so again, the idea that behind the memorial is not the object itself. It's the story that it represents. It's the example that it represents. So why tell the story? Because that's how we communicate to our kids our faith in God. Now, I don't know if your kids are anything like mine. Mine are very talented at remembering lyrics from songs, and they can quote a lot of different movie lines. Now, I can't say that it's just my kids, perhaps, that can do that. I do not think that word means what you think it means. What I want from my kids is that the things that I have observed God do with my own eyes, that those stories would roll off their tongues just as easily as those lyrics. So that they would learn to do what? So that they would learn to do the same. That is what makes faith real. You encourage them to follow your example. You communicate to them answers to prayer. We prayed for this, and here's how God answered. We had this trouble, we had this affliction. Here's how God delivered us. You teach them that prayer demonstrates humility, that you went to God because it was only he that could do what it is that you needed to have done. How many of you are praying for kids? 
Why, why pray to God about the salvation of your kids? Because he's the only one who can bring it about. You demonstrate gratitude for answered prayer. You demonstrate gratitude for God's provision and for his care. You model those things for them. You know, at Thanksgiving, there's a poem about what we opened with. And we have copies of that poem for each person at the table. And there's five cranes of corn on each plate. Now, contrary to popular belief, I was not around in 1623 to experience that firsthand. It struck me a few days ago, I've never known hunger, ever. I've gone several days without eating. That was by choice. That wasn't by compulsion. I've never known what it is to be homeless. I've never known privation. I can't imagine what it's like to eat five grains of corn for days on end. Frankly, I wonder if it would be better to not eat at all for a time and save them up. How often have you experienced the peace of God that passes all understanding? Have you told your kids that and how it happened? That's what demonstrates to them that your faith is real, that it's your faith and not someone else's. If you didn't have the peace of God that surpassed all understanding, why not? Were you being anxious? Were you trying to deal with something that wasn't in your power to accomplish? You can teach them positively and negatively, right? When I did what, when I did what God said, I experienced this. God's word was true. When I disobeyed, I experienced the consequences for that. It's just as helpful to let them know there's consequences for disobedience just as there are consequences for obedience. You're pointing your eyes, you're pointing their eyes to the Savior. You're ascribing value to God, which is the essence of worship, right? And this isn't just Old Testament. Now, it's easy because we're looking at this and all the passages we were looking at, those were all Old Testament. Well, guess what? It's true in the New Testament too. So for instance, we don't have a lot of festivals, but we have one. We're about to have it here in a few minutes. This memorial exists for what reason? It's to remember the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. God has rescued us from the domain of darkness and delivered us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins that was accomplished by what we're going to recall. And by eating the bread and drinking the cup, what do we do? We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So there's remembering and there's telling. There's both. Shepherds are commanded on a multiple, multiple, on a bunch of occasions to remind the flock. So for instance, Romans 15, 15, 1 Corinthians 4, 17, 2 Timothy 1, 6, and 2 Timothy 2, 14, Titus 3, 1, 2 Peter 1, 12, 13, 15, and 3, 1, and 2, and Jude 5. Those are all commands to remind them of one thing or another relative 
to God's word. And then last and certainly not least, what's one of the primary ministries of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling Holy Spirit? John 14, 26, right? He will bring to your remembrance the things that I have said. So it's important enough to God that as he's residing in us, it is to bring to our remembrance the things that he has said. How do you do that? What can you put into play? What can you put into practice that you are habitually recalling and recounting what God has done for you? Now, a number of you are reading through the Bible in a year, and that is a a fantastic practice. You're getting exposed to the whole counsel of God on a regular basis. And so again, you have the promises of, that God made in the Old Testament, you have the promises that God made in the New Testament, and you have um, all of those relatively fresh in your thinking. And that's a good place to start. That's the revelation of God as to who he is. The revelation of God as to what he requires of you and of me. Do you keep a prayer journal? If you do, you'll have a good record of God's answers to specific prayers, both for yourself and for others. You know, I can look out. A lot of you are new. Some of the others that are here that are older. I can look and I can see and remember different things where God has intervened on behalf of people in this congregation. What does that do for their faith when God intervenes on their behalf? It strengthens it, right? When you see God answer big prayers, it encourages you to pray big. But it's not restricted to you because you've talked about it. And it hasn't just impacted your kids, it's impacted me. It's impacted other people here. And so again, the more that we pray together, the more that this cross-pollinates so that we have more of a base ourselves in order to go over and pass that on to our kids. Israel didn't do that, you know. If you go to the book of Joshua, or excuse me, the book of Judges, you'll find that after Joshua died and all the elders that had served with Joshua, the people wandered away. Why? Because they weren't teaching their kids. And all of a sudden there arose a people who didn't know the truth. If you don't know the truth, you certainly can't keep it. Israel was was to be a light to the nations. We are to be a light to those around us. We are to remember. We are to tell what God has done for us. We are to be those who shed light now. We start with those that are in our home. They're a captive audience. And so we speak of these things, we teach these things. You disciple your kids. And again, the best way to do that is, here's what God's word says, and here are examples in God's word of how he's done that, and here's examples of how he's done it here in our home. Many of those things will be things that they themselves have seen, right? And so again, you're able to teach and you're able to disciple. You can't save them. That's not in our power. 
but we can certainly train them. And that's what we're to do, right? We're to train our children up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. That's the care, and that's the instruction of what God has given us. We're going to come now to this table, to this remembrance. This table is a reminder. A reminder of something that happened a long time ago that no one in this room saw. And yet we continue to see the effects of it. We continue to experience the effects of it. Lord Jesus, we didn't deserve your mercy. We didn't deserve your compassion. There was nothing attractive about us. You had no need of us in heaven. We had no right to demand. We had no way in order to be able to approach you. There was no way for us to be able to save ourselves. You accomplished salvation entirely on your own. You chose those who you would save before the beginning of time, before the foundation of the world, and you accomplished all of it. You even give us the faith that we need to believe. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but you have made us alive in Christ. And we are so grateful. What can we say to you but thank you? And what can we do but offer you everything that we have? Father, help us to not be forgetful people. Help us be those who recall all of the things that you have done for us so that we may proclaim those things to anyone who'll listen. Thank you that you give us the privilege of being your kids, your adopted sons and daughters. And thank you for giving us the privilege of speaking on your behalf. Help us to be diligent Help us to be faithful. In Christ's name, amen.